With that said, if you would take out your Bibles and open to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to read verses 35 through 49, which will also be the content of our sermon this morning. We're continuing Paul's discourse on the resurrection of the body in verse 35. But some will say, how are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? You fool, that which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And that which you sow, you do not sow the body which is to be but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body just as he wished, and to each of the seeds a body of its own. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one flesh of men, and another flesh of beasts, and another flesh of birds, and another of fish. There are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is one, and the glory of the earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for stars differ from star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there also is also a spiritual body. So also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a life-giving soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man is from the earth, earthy. The second man is from heaven. As is the earthy, so also are those who are of the so also are those who are earthy. And as is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. Just as we have borne the image of the earthy, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. This ends the reading of God's word. Please be seated. Let's go before the Lord in prayer once again. In preparation to hear from him this morning. Lord God, I thank you for this morning. Able as we are to gather together once again. And Lord, as we pray week in and week out, we ask that you will grant me the ability to communicate your glorious truth to these, your one day to be glorified people, for the glory of your name, the sanctification of your people, for the salvation of the lost, for Christ's sake, amen. This past Friday at Singing Hills Memorial Park during the funeral um, committal service of our brother Peter Garrick, I spoke these words. Here we commit the body of Peter Bryce Garrick to its kindred dust. Earth to earth, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. Whose trust was in him who said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Because of the cursed consequence of Adam's sin, God said in Genesis 3, verse 19, by the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Under the federal headship of Adam, the first human being, we are natural-born sinners otherwise known as the doctrine of original sin. Being of Adam's seed, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, the consequence of which is death. The moment we are born and begin to live life outside of our mother's womb, we begin to die. The breakdown of the body eventually leads back to the dust out of which Adam was formed. 
the theme of this chapter is the physical resurrection of the believer. The Bible promises redemption, not merely of the soul, not just the inner person, not only the spirit, but Romans 8.23 says that we are waiting for the redemption of our body. As far back as Job, who likely lived during the time of Abraham, that is the beginning of the revealed word of God, he declared clearly and boldly by way of divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit that I know my Redeemer lives. And at the last, he will take his stand on the earth, even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh, I shall see God, whom I myself shall behold, and whom my eyes will see, and not another. In this chapter, the Apostle Paul is defending the biblical doctrine of the physical resurrection of the body. Because some in Corinth were denying it. And that was likely because of the um, influence of Greek philosophy who taught the immortality of the soul. But Greek dualism denied a physical resurrection from the grave. They viewed the body as evil and corrupt. Ideally for them, they just wanted to get rid of the body and become some you know, eternal um, floating spirit. That was the mentality. So they denied the resurrection altogether. And this faulty thinking was leading the way in Corinth, within the church. So, so again, friends, it's very important to understand um, what's at stake here is not the immortality of the soul. That wasn't the problem, but rather what happens to the body that is placed into the grave? What happens to the body that has been cremated? Does it remain forever in corruption or will it be raised again? And Paul gives an emphatic answer in a very masterful way. And he begins by stating the gospel in verses 1 through 11, which is, of course, based on two monumental pillars. Number one, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And he rose again the third day bodily also according to the scriptures. Let me pause for a moment. I've been here for 14 weeks, and I like it cold. I see that many of you are very cold and freezing, so we're going to ask someone to adjust the air for us so that you won't be uncomfortable in our first week back in these one-day-to-be-glorified resurrected bodies. <laughs> Can I get a witness? Amen. So he begins with the gospel, verses 1 through 11, and then in verses 12 through 19... He goes on to argue that if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. Remember this? At home, in your pajamas, drinking your coffee? <laughs> you sure do. Okay, so if that's the case, there's no gospel. If Christ, if Christ has not been raised, there is no gospel. Forget it. Throw your Bible away. Period. Your faith is a delusion, and we are indeed, of all people, most to be pitied. Living life, professing this Christ, he is no Christ if he hasn't been raised from the dead. And then in verses 21 to 28, he shows how Christ's bodily resurrection is the surety that all in Christ will be raised in the same fashion. The time of that bodily resurrection, he goes on to say, will be at the return of Christ at the end of the age. The Lord's resurrection is the first event of God's promised resolution to the rebellion of Eden. A foretaste of God's ultimate future given before its arrival. 
That is the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 23, Christ, notice, the first fruits after that, those who are Christ's at his coming. Then comes the end. When he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. That is to say, he will ultimately lay claim to all things when he finally destroys all of his enemies, both visible and invisible. He reigns now, in other words. Verse 26, the last enemy that will be abolished is death. Then comes the eternal state that God may be all in, all, verse 28. And then in verses 29 to 34, we studied that the denial of the bodily resurrection makes void Christian doctrine and practice. You are wasting your time if there is no physical resurrection to be here this morning. Without a bodily resurrection, it it empties the significance of Christian baptism and evangelism. It makes suffering for the name of Christ, for the sake of the gospel, absurd, foolish, and it corrupts godliness, making Christian ethics pointless. If there is no resurrection, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die and you go to hell. So live it up now, because this is as close to glory as you're going to ever be, if there is no resurrection. But there is. And here in verses 35 through 49, he continues his defense by establishing the nature of the resurrection body. The nature of this resurrection body. Because there were two objections being raised against the bodily resurrection. Verse 35, look at it. Two of them. But someone will say, how and with what kind? How are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? So the word but provides a contrast. That is to say, look, despite the gospel that declares the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ and that he is in fact the first fruits of those who have died, some will continue to deny the physical resurrection. And the tone of their objection is one of ridicule and scorn, saying, how? With what kind? Are you kidding me? And that is because of the corruption and the disintegration that flesh undergoes. Bodies die and return to dust. Scoffers conclude this is absurd. No doubt considering there are people who have been eaten by wild beasts. There have been those lost at sea, eaten by sharks, consumed By a raging fire, their bodies have been cremated, their their ashes scattered on a hillside somewhere or into the ocean. How can flesh that's been turned to dust be brought back again? And with what kind of body, Paul, do they come? Please tell us. See this? A little excited today. Paul says that the dead are raised from corruption, from disintegration, by the power of God. That's how. By the power of God. So the key verse in his answer is verse 38. God gives it a body just as he wished. God does whatever he wishes. I don't even really like that word wish whatever he decrees. Don't ever have the picture that God rubs his hands together looking up in the the sky wishing something. He's almighty, omnipotent creator God. 
So Paul now, notice, he uses three analogies from nature to drive home his point. Okay, he lays it out. Number one is that of a common seed. He's going to answer the how and with what kind. With illustrations from a common seed. Number two, um, the many kinds of flesh we see around us. And number three is the varying glory, both of the terrestrial and the celestial. That is the earthly and the cosmic. Illustrations from creation. So he'll conclude the section with a contrast between the first Adam and the last Adam. That is the first man and the God man. All right? So th this is where we're headed this morning. Are you all ready? Prepared? You, you want a long sermon today? Is that what you wanted? Did I hear the emails correctly? No, it'll be about the same. Just kidding. <laughs> okay, so the question, verse 35, is either rhetorical or this was a question that they had actually posed in the letter that they wrote to him. You remember back in chapter 7 and verse 1? He said, now concerning the things about which you wrote me. So we don't know for sure whether it's rhetorical or if they actually raised this question. But here now, with tones of Greek skepticism, how can God reanimate the dead? How can he reanimate a decayed body? And with what kind? Paul will have none of it. Notice in verse 36, you know, Paul being the seeker-sensitive pragmatist that he was, not, he says, you fool. You fool. A fool describes someone devoid of wisdom and understanding who actually pride themselves in their intellect, but they're fools. Why? Why are they fools? Because they do not begin their thinking and their reasoning with a, a proper presupposition. And that is here the fact of the glory and the power of the creator. You fool. Literally, you senseless one. See, that's why when I use the word fool up here, it's biblical. Right? And that's the context. See, the, the fool reasons from his autonomy. Self-governing rule. And some will go so far as to say, there is no God. And the word tells us that only the fool says in his heart that there is no God. The truth is, God defines reality, and we humbly submit our minds to his revelation, whether it's general revelation of the created order, or especially special revelation, his word. We submit to him. We don't define him, he defines himself. Psalm 19 verse 1 tells us that the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament his handiwork. Romans 1, chapter, uh, Romans 1 verse 20 says God's power and divine nature is revealed in creation so that no one has an excuse. Yet they suppress the truth in their what? In their unrighteousness. Just turn on the news and you'll see it on display. So Paul uses creation reasoning here as an illustration, especially with reference to the power of Almighty God to convince the critics of their foolishness, to dare deny the physical resurrection. Remember in Matthew 22, when Jesus' enemies tried to discredit him, in leading the charge were the Sadducees who denied the physical, what? resurrection so they thought they could trick him so they gave him a scenario trying to impale him on the horns of a dilemma and again he made them look like fools and he began his answer to them concerning their denial of the physical resurrection saying this you are mistaken not understanding first and foremost the scriptures nor do you understand what? The power of God. Fools. 
So here, you fool. You mean to tell me, Corinthians, the God who spoke the universe into existence, things seen and unseen, out of nothing, he created it all out of nothing, you mean to tell me that he can't bring forth life from death? Is that what you're saying, Corinthian fools? So he, he says, in essence, open your eyes. All around you is the display of the power of God the creator. Verse 36, notice. That which you sow does not come to life unless it what? Dies. And that which you sow, you do not sow the body which is to be, but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or of something else. Now here he speaks to a people um, very familiar with the analogy of planting and harvesting. Okay, When, When a seed is buried... Its existence as a seed is destroyed, so to speak. The seed is buried like the body. Into the ground, it disappears from sight, so it, it dies in that sense. It's his argument. And then when the crop finally sprouts up and grows, the seed is completely gone. It has perished. And it rises again to something larger and something better. The plant with its fruit has arisen from the seed. You see this? Isn't it beautiful? So all around us in every field and in every garden, we see a kind of death and resurrection. Is what the apostle is telling us. And that, he says is a picture of the bodily resurrection of believers. You know, Jesus used the same analogy describing his own death. You remember that? Jesus said this, the time has come for the Son of Man to be what? Glorified. And then he went on to say this in John 12 and verse 24. Look at it. The time has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. His death provided for us as Christians here this morning the glorious fruit of saving grace. Born of the Spirit as we are this morning. A rich harvest of countless souls throughout the world. So why then should people be surprised by the thought of the human body being raised in similar matter? Why? The plant comes from out of the seed just as God ordained and providentially orchestrates. He's in control of it all. Every plant. Every tree. Verse 38. But God gives it a body just as he wished. And to each of the seeds a body of its own. In other words, he's active in all events of creation. He's not the God of the deists. That he just created everything and created natural laws, you know, leaving creation to run on its own. No, he's intimately involved. Do we believe this? Any deists here that need to be corrected this morning? Deacons, let me know if any hands are up there in the back. God gives everything. Even seeds and plants, their form and their purpose. An acorn, you plant it in the ground, it doesn't become a rose bush. Amen? It becomes a great oak. So every seed that comes to life, Paul argues, is due to the purposes and power of God. He gives it life. So Paul says, look, you cannot deny the process of the seed... So why, Corinthians, are you denying the process of the resurrection of the body? All, all of which is according to the power of God. 
the creator. You fools. Now, friends, although you, you cannot know from this current body in which you reside what your resurrection body is going to look like, the good news is it will be to this body, it will be to that body in which you reside what a beautiful flower is to an ugly, coarse seed. Together we all say, Glory, hallelujah, amen. All right? So in verse 39 now, he, he moves from seeds and plants to the flesh of humans and animal species. Okay? All part of this glorious argument. Notice, God's power is shown here in which he creates bodies of living creatures differently, uniquely. In a way, by the way, okay, did you catch that? In a way, by the way, that is perfectly suited for their sphere of existence in this life. That is for land, water, and air. In the same way, he argues, God is more than able to constitute our bodies, these bodies, at the resurrection to be perfectly suited for our new glorified existence. You know there are people today who teach that there is no physical resurrection of the dead. I've mentioned this over the past few weeks. Fools. Peddling heresy. Notice in verses 40 and 41, we see uh, the power of God displayed in creation. And, and notice the differences of, of heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. On the earth, what do, what do we see? Some of you have been on vacation. The glory of a mountain. Amen? The beauty of rivers. I, I saw your Instagram photos this week. The beauties of the ocean. Sunsets, things that inspire all within us, amen? And notice the glory seen in heavenly bodies. Notice the sun, the moon, the stars, and they differ, notice, from one another in what? In glory. Glory means manifestation, manifestation, a unique manifestation, unique in kind, unique in splendor to their form and function. The God who's all-powerful does this. All according to the creative power and purposes of God. Here's their splendor. Here's their individual glory. So Paul's point is, look, if God does that, is he not, is he not able to make a difference in glory between our pre-resurrection and post-resurrection bodies? Of course he is, you fools in Corinth. Of course he is. So using illustrations, notice from nature, every plant is unique. Every animal is unique. Illustrations from space, God has created bodies in outer space without limit. And there are no duplicates. Isn't this amazing? No duplicates. I was riding my bicycle the other day thinking about, I was in awe of the fact that no human being is identical. Not even identical twins are identical. It's a, that's amazing in and of itself. So understanding that Almighty God can raise bodies out of their corruption with new bodies suitable for the eternal state is no more difficult for God than all of the above. Nature, space, I mean, you name it. He speaks, and it happens. So this sets the stage for the conclusion that Paul reaches in verse 42. So also is the resurrection of the dead. 
so also. So this, this is Paul's answer to the objection, with what kind of body do they come? How and with what kind? In verses 42 to 49, our bodies will be raised and brilliantly transformed to be perfectly suited for our new life in the eternal state of God's kingdom. His kingdom was established when he came. This kingdom, his kingdom will be consummated when he comes again. And the dead shall be raised up. So our our resurrection bodies will not be of the same nature as the ones in which we now reside. Now, there is a connection between them. Amen? There is a connection, just as there was with Christ's resurrection body. And when we see him, we will be what? Like him. Okay? So, his resurrection body was not of the same nature as the one that was planted in the tomb. His body was able to rise up and walk out of that tomb. He was able to stand before his disciples. He was able to ascend up into the atmosphere, into the heavens, and take his seat at the right hand of God the Father Almighty in that resurrected body. So our dead bodies will will come back to life Uh, different from that which was sown. That is a different manifestation that we just read about. Now, he's going to teach this in more depth by drawing four contrasts, okay? Look at verse 42, four contrasts. It is sown a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable body. That's number one. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. That's number two. It is sown in weakness, raised in power, number three. And it is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. First notice, contrast between the perishable and the imperishable. That is corruption and incorruption. Our bodies, see if I can get a witness on this are now subject to sickness, pain, decline, and ultimately, death. You know, I said earlier, I I walked down the street. My grandson was with us for 90 days to finish up the school year. So we would go for a walk around the block or blocks every evening to look for bugs and lizards. And almost every night he found one, believe it or not. So we're walking around, no mask, we're outside, man. Someone would be 100 yards away from me, and they're wearing their mask, and that's fine. And they wide-eyed look at me like, oh. And they, and they walk to the other side of the street. I smile, but you, 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 do you understand why? I've never seen people more controlled by the media or gripped by fear. Why? They know that they are perishable. They know that death looms. And look, I'm not attacking being safe, okay? I'm just pointing out the fact that people are in fear of death. That they are perishable. Romans 8, we read from it earlier. All of creation groans in this present corruption, not only the creation, but we who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly, awaiting eagerly the redemption of our what? Bodies. Of our bodies. Our bodies are in the process of decay. Our organs, our eyes, our muscles, our minds are all wearing out. We break limbs, we get diseases, we get infections, and we die. Perishable. And once these bodies die, they decay rapidly. There'll be a stench in the room within hours. 
But our resurrection bodies, notice, will not be subject to corruption, but raised, notice, imperishable forever. This perishable will then be imperishable. Second contrast, notice, it is sown in dishonor, it is raised in, say the word, glory. Friends, there is a short-lived attractiveness to these present bodies. People can only show off for so long in this life. Walk around without a shirt on, guys. Right? <clears throat> I'll stop there. You know, unless you um, live fast and die young and leave a good-looking corpse, you're going to wear out. You're going to wear out. A life of injuries, ailments, cancers, scars will tear down this body and it is clothed in dishonor. The older you get, the more dishonor is revealed. And then dead bodies are quickly covered. They're put away from our sight. There's no life in it. It is dishonored, clothed in dishonor. Our brother on Friday was clothed in dishonor now awaiting glory. He's in the presence of Christ, the intermediate state. His spirit is there, and his body will be raised to be joined back with his spirit when Christ comes again. So it was sown in dishonor. Not, Not the glorious memory of our loved one. That's not what we're talking about. But his or her physical body is sown in dishonor, is what he says. The resurrection body will never know any dishonor, but only glory. Only glory will it be known by. Now, Jesus gives us a hint of this. Speaking of the last day, look at it in Matthew chapter 13 and verse 43. He said, then, then the righteous will shine forth. As the son in the kingdom of their father, he who has ears, let him hear. Remember Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration? He goes up with Peter, James, and John, and he is transfigured before their eyes from flesh to glory. And what did they do? They said, oh, this is great. Is that what they did? Is that what they did? No, they fell in fear. And he said, fear not. He's shown, we read, like the sun in all of its strength. Remember, way back in the Old Covenant, Moses, mediator of the Old Covenant, went into the presence of God, received the law of God. When he came down, there was something different about his flesh. Just from being in the presence of God for a few hours, actually a few days, We read in 2 Corinthians 3, 7, uh, the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory of his face fading as it was. Remember what they asked him to do? To cover his face because of just the reflected glory of God. Glory, magnificent and beautiful, will surround us. These bodies on that day will never, ever know dishonor again. You say, well, when we're in heaven, will we recognize one another? Well, it's not really a matter of recognition there, but rather a matter of innate knowledge. Innate knowledge. You will know as you are known. Amen? So you know how we'll bump into someone in the street or a restaurant and you're, you start scratching your chin? chin. Do, do I, don't I know you? None of that then. None of that. Innate, unfallen, perfect knowledge. And yet, because we're finite for all of eternity, we'll be learning with regard to our infinite creator and redeemer. Isn't that something? Isn't that something? Amen. Thirdly, it is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. Sown in weakness, 
raised in power. Now, our, our bodies, these present bodies, experience both physical and spiritual weakness. We're, our bodies are surrounded by weakness. This is his argument. We work, we go to work, we work hard, hopefully, and we grow tired. After several hours of being awake, we must sleep. That's why people who do drugs, who don't sleep for days, turn into lunatics on the street. We need sleep because we're weak. And also, not only is there physical weakness associated with this flesh, there is also spiritual weakness in these present bodies. We're subject to temptation. Amen? What do we desire to do with these bodies? To pamper them. We want to pamper our flesh. And we, we often give in to sin. Physically weak, spiritually weak. We live now in fallen bodies that become the focus of temptation. And sometimes they be actually become the instruments of sin. These bodies. That's me and that's you, presently. Physically weak, spiritually weak. And the ultimate picture of weakness and helplessness in the human body is death itself. You can do anything you want to a dead body and it will not respond. You can poke it, prick it, kick it, no response. Dead. We're physically weak, spiritually weak, but we'll be raised. These bodies raised in power. So the resurrection body will have none of that. There'll be no lust of the flesh. No spirit against the flesh and flesh against the spirit battles. Amen? Not then. Whoo! Full of power. Full of vitality. This is our hope. Certain hope. There'll be nothing to hinder our service to Christ. Is your service to Christ hindered right now? Yeah. Someone said yes. Of course it is. We'll have bodies of strength, is what he's saying. Power. Now, all that, will we, all that we will be able to do in those resurrected bodies, we don't know. But there are some things we do know. Because we're in Christ. And we will be like him. When Jesus' resurrection body, um, while it was remarkably um, the same... In appearance, it was radically different at the same time. In ways, honestly, that we cannot comprehend in the here and now. But just a few things. Um, Jesus was able to suddenly appear and then suddenly disappear and then reappear at a distance. He was able to eat food. He was able to pass through closed doors. He ascended physically into heaven at the speed he controlled. Right up into the clouds, clouds of glory. We're, we're going to be able to do similar things in the resurrection body. Did you know that? Can, can you imagine? I mean, to travel to, to distant galaxies at warp speed. You ever thought about that? Why not? Why haven't you thought about that? You should think about that. You know, you grow up in life wanting to be a superhero. Because of the imagination God has given us. That's nothing compared to this. We have no idea what's in store for those in Christ with regard to resurrection bodies. We can imagine what we'll be able to do in a new heavens and a new earth with a resurrected body no longer weak in any way. Fourthly, verse 44, it is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. Okay, first, do not make the mistake. Okay, th this contrast is not between material and non-material bodies, but rather between a body presently suited for this world, which is limited, controlled by natural impulses, that 
is a comparison to a physically raised body that is fully empowered by the Holy Spirit. That kind of body. Natural body here needs food. You need water. You need sleep. You need clothing. The spiritual body needs none of these, but will be controlled in, entirely by the Holy Spirit. Imagine that. We, lust, we, we, we fight against the Spirit now. So this is not referring to some, you know, ethereal, disembodied spirit, you know, floating around that the Greeks imagined. This is a body fit to conformity of Christ's body. Remember what Jesus said in Luke 24? Look at it, verse 39. See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit, a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And if you're in Christ, you too will have. So th this spiritual body is able to live in the new creation, fully submitted to the Holy Spirit, who does presently dwell within us. Amen? He dwells within us now as believers but the glorification of our bodies will be the ultimate fruition of our sanctification. This is what we have in store for us in Christ. No longer subject to the limitations of the mind. No longer subject to the limitations of, the, of this present physical body. Beautiful. We will be instantly able to, to respond to every impulse of the new creation without any battle. To every thought of the Lord, without struggle. Verse 44, if there's a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Now, Paul goes on to explain more fully what he means uh, by the natural and the spiritual in verses 45 to 49. Okay, if you notice... Okay, the head of the human race is first man, Adam, who became a living soul. Soul. That means life within man. Life within woman. So we, we receive a natural life and a natural body governed by the impulses that we have by virtue of our union with Adam. We receive spiritual life and the body he just spoke about by virtue of our union with Christ, the last Adam. So in Christ, we will receive a body that is incorruptible, glorious, powerful, and perfectly spiritual. Physical body that's perfectly spiritual. That's what he's talking about. Man, verses 46 to 47, notice, natural life comes first, then spiritual. Spiritual only for those in Christ. Adam's origin is solely from the earth, from the dust. Christ, although he had a body, his origin is heaven. Heaven. So the form is no problem for God. Do we see Paul's argument? Do we see the conclusion? The form of a resurrection body is no problem for almighty, powerful God. He can and will provide for you a body fit for glory on the last day. Verses 48 and 49, um, descendants of Adam um, derive from him the earthly body, which is subject to decay. Just look in the mirror. If you weren't decaying, you wouldn't have to fix yourself this morning. You wake up and you have to fix yourself. And I say to my wife, it must be nice just to roll out of bed looking good. And I got to spend all this time to be somewhat presentable because of decay, subject to 
decay. Notice the people of Christ. Only the people of Christ will receive a body fashioned like unto his glorious body. Look at these verses. Rapid fire. Ready? Rapid fire. Philippians 3, verse 20. Our citizenship is in heaven. We opened with this this morning. From which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. Notice, by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Power. Colossians 3, verse 4. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in what? Glory. Romans 8, 30. These whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. These whom he justified, he also glorified. You're you're as good as glorified right now because you're justified in Christ. It's guaranteed. 1 John 3, verse 2. Beloved, now we are children of God. Now. And it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be what? Like him, because we will see him just as he is. So Paul's point is this. If you're in Christ Jesus, though now for a little while, you will bear the first Adam's likeness, we will one day certainly bear the last Adam's likeness, the Lord Jesus Christ, the image of the man of heaven, guaranteed. You will be like Christ in resurrection glory, something that we cannot begin to comprehend, beloved. I can't. But both in body and in nature. (laughs) So from the risen Christ, We in Christ, we who are in Christ, will receive a resurrected body perfectly suited for our new spiritual eternal state. There will be personal identity with these bodies in glory. But with qualities that far surpass anything that we know or can even imagine. That'll give you hope. Amen? So, by way of application, just a couple points to think about. Friends, live in light of eternity. Live in light of this. Okay? Do not be conformed to this world, but be every day transformed by the renewing of your mind. So, if you just watch the news all day without reading the Bible, you'll go insane. And you'll start talking like a fool because you'll start to mimic them. You'll start to parrot them instead of listening to what they say and then you funnel it through the word of God. Don't kowtow. Do not kowtow and conform to the pressure of the marching maniacs through the streets of our cities, friends. I know Christians that are. The world hates the nonconformity of nonconformity. And if you read Spurgeon yesterday, that's exactly what he said. Don't kowtow to the Christless, quote-unquote, Cretans that Paul described in Titus, who are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Also, he says, stay clear of saddling up with those who profess to know God, but their deeds, by their deeds, they deny him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless of any good deed. Don't bow. Proclaim. Because this is your eternal hope. 
Point of application number two, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. So the great question this morning is, are you in Jesus the last Adam? Or are you still only in the first Adam? And therefore, you will not see the glory that is to come that was just described if you're only in the first Adam. In Scripture, there are two births and there are two deaths. There's the natural birth. We all have experienced it. Natural birth, physical birth. But there's another birth. It's the second birth that Jesus spoke about. When he confronted Nicodemus, he said, Most assuredly, I say unto you, unless you're born again, literally born from above, you cannot see the kingdom. You can't even comprehend it, let alone enter it. You must be born again. That is to say, spiritually, you must be made new. New life by the grace of God must break in upon you, without which you have no hope. It must break in here and it must break in now, whether you're in this room, the back room, the other back room, or at home. Now. Today is the day of salvation because it is possible to verbally affirm the resurrection and still fall into judgment because you've never been changed by resurrection power that begins on the inside, transformed, born the second time. When he goes to work, resurrection life is made visible and it radically transforms our life. Amen? Radically. So the resurrection is the key. Resurrection that begins in the inside. Resurrection life of our spirit is the key to understanding the biblical story. That is redemptive history. The meaning of life. Where we come from, why are we here, what happens when we die? Without which, you'll never get a grasp. So resurrection life must become yours today if you haven't been born twice. Two births because there's two deaths. Amen? Two births, two deaths. There's the natural death. We will all experience that at the end of our lives. We all must face natural death, but John in the book of Revelation goes on to describe another death, and it's called the second death, otherwise known as the lake of fire, and all people who die now outside of Christ are cast into outer darkness where there's wailing, weeping, and gnashing of teeth, otherwise known as hell. When Christ comes again, hell will be cast into the lake of fire, but not before unbelievers receive their resurrection body to, to be able to endure internal, eternal torment. There's another resurrection of those who reject Christ. So I ask, are you in the first Adam, a man of dust, born only once, doomed to die twice, or are you in the last Adam, the man of heaven, Jesus Christ, the only sinner of saviors, born twice to die once? The call for you, if that's you, in love, we bid you to come. Not up here to the front, but where you are. You come to Christ by faith. You repent and you believe and you entrust yourself to him and you shall be saved from the second death. And what's in store for you? Everything we studied for the last 58 minutes. Amen? Embrace by faith the Lord Jesus, the resurrection and the life that by believing in him, though you die, and you will, ooh, even though you shall live. Amen? Amen. Glad to be back together. Let's pray. Father, thank you for resurrection hope. Certainty rooted in your gospel through the finished work of your son, the first fruits, the first fruits of those who are in him. Lord, bless this, your word, to your people's hearts this morning. And I do ask that every, every ear that has heard what is said today would actually hear. 
and be born of the Spirit, given new life in Christ, so they can be certain of resurrection life that is to come. For the glory of your name and the good of your people, we pray. Amen.